to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Okay, well, welcome. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my pleasure to welcome our guest today, Bill, right here. Um, Wesley Lowry is a, uh, a Boston Globe veteran and did a lot of reporting here. When did you leave the Globe? A year ago. Exactly. A year ago. Well, he left and he's been a busy fellow ever since. <laughs> uh, he did a terrific job reporting from Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and got an awful lot of uh, attention to his work at that time. He's been doing a lot of things that are focused on um, on the kinds of reporting that is very difficult to do well and very difficult to do in a way that speaks to Americans of every background and ethnicity, especially on subjects as fraught as the one in Ferguson. We're very glad to have you with us you so and uh, look forward to, uh, to hearing what you have to say. Of course. Well, thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate the great weather you put together for me. On we show. try to do that. <laughs> I was just saying, I really miss, you know, good Boston winter. Uh, and my good, my, my dear friends down in D.C. are freaking out right now because I think we've gotten a half an inch of snow, maybe. A small dusting, you can almost not see the grass. And people are real. And I think we're in a state of emergency. So you guys are, I know you're going on, what, week, week four of craziness, however long this has been. But, um, no, it's really great to be back in Boston. Um, I, like Alex said, I, I worked here um, up until this time last year when I left the Globe to join the Washington Post, um, which was really hard for me actually because I love I love Boston. I love the Globe. Um, I still I love coming back up. I was out with all my good friends late last too late last night. Um, <laughs> but we, um, you know, it, it's really great to be back. So a little more about me. Um, like I said, I. Uh, Previously, I'd worked for the, for the Globe, where I covered city and state politics, as well as some breaking news. Um, contributed a little bit to our Boston Marathon coverage back in 2013. Which um, won a Pulitzer Prize. Which won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news reporting. Um, I also did, while I was here, um, the initial uh, indictment and charging of Aaron Hernandez, the Patriots tight end, um, with what is now three first-degree murder charges. Uh, and were I still working here, I'd be in the courtroom right now as this trial's going on. Um, and then I left about a year ago to join the Post, where I did a good job covering Congress and national politics. Um, covered the last 113th Congress, um, which got a grand total of zero things done. Um, so it was a pretty pretty easy workload. Um, and co covered covered the last session of Congress, um, as well as did some did some national politics. Is what I always wanted to do was politics, the kind of intersective race and politics. So I, I uh, did a few different kind of national political stories, helping out on our midterm coverage. Uh, last July, I was sitting in my grandparents' living room in Detroit. I'd gone up to Michigan to do all these Senate stories on the Senate race up there. Um, and as I'm sitting there, I, I'm checking social media. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be on my phone the entire time I'm talking, so you all should feel free to be as well. But I'm on my phone constantly, and I'm seeing these posts come from a friend of mine, this uh, woman, Brittany Noble, is a friend. She's a local television reporter in St. Louis. And she's just blowing up, like, my Instagram. She's blowing up Instagram with all these videos from the scene of some shooting. Something has happened in some suburb, and there are all these people. And I jump over on Twitter, and I see that there's, it seems to be getting a little traction, especially among kind of the 
people who kind of cover race and law enforcement. I'm kind of in that world on Twitter a little bit already. And so I'm like, all right. And so I give her a shout out. Like, hey, you should follow my friend Brittany. She's at the scene, whatever this thing is in this place. I don't know what's happening. And so, and so, like, go to bed. Go, I go get dinner. Like, I'm staying stay with my grandparents. I go get dinner with them. And then I, and then the next day on Sunday, I fly back to fly back to DC. Have a late flight. And as I'm getting off the flight, I'm, I'm I turn my phone back on. I'm checking social. And I see a bunch of stuff happening. Brittany's talking about there's kind of this violence has broken out and things are getting a little crazy. And I see another good friend of mine, Matt Pierce, the LA Times reporter. I knew I worked briefly at the LA Times. I knew him from there. He's from Missouri. And he, I guess, had dropped in. And, he, and he's talking about, you know, this gas station's about to get burned down. And there's all this stuff going on. And I'm thinking, like, what is happening in this place that I've never heard of? And so I'm a Congress reporter. So I wake up the next morning and I come into... Uh, come to the office and I walk over to our national desk and I say, I'm going to, listen, I'm going to make some calls. I'll call the senator's office. I'll call the congressman's office. I'll see maybe, maybe they'll call for a federal investigation of this thing. There was this violence last night. Who knows what's really happening? Um, and they say, all right, cool. That's a plan. We kind of, we work it out. I start making calls and the editor walks over to me and says, you think you can get on a plane? And I really, really did not want to get on a plane at all. I hadn't unpacked from my trip to Michigan yet. I still had the same bag. Um, I come straight from the airport. And I was like, ah, I, you know, you know. Sometimes, sometimes you know, especially for me, since I enjoy these issues, I, I enjoy writing about race and ethnicity and kind of our complicated and still fraught relationship with each other that we have on those lines. When those type of opportunities present themselves, I, I try not to say no, no matter how desperately I maybe don't want to go get on this plane right now. And so I'm, so I'm thinking I'm going to drop in. It's, this is Monday. I'm thinking I'm dropping into Missouri for a day. We'll get a dateline in the paper tomorrow. Then I'll spend two days doing some interviews. I'll write a, I'll write a feature for the weekend. I'll be home by Saturday night hanging out with my buddies in D.C. Um, clearly that wasn't what happened. I essentially lived in Missouri from August 11th until December 11th um, with a few breaks, but essentially lived in Missouri for, for all that time. Um, you know, I land and it, it became apparent very quickly that this was a story that was about much more than an 18-year-old boy who'd been shot in the street. Um, and that was something that I think I, I tried to, I tried to make apparent in a lot of the things I wrote and I kind of tried how I covered it. Um, I remember when I landed, I first thing I went to was the family was having their first press conference, which for those of us who've covered officer-involved shootings before or other types of, uh, any press conferences involving a victim, someone who's been killed, emotional, sad, but not out of the ordinary. And then I, next thing I did is I went to a, um, a town hall, it was held by the NAACP, again, something that's not a, not out of the ordinary, I've been to these many times before, I'm expecting a few hundred people maybe, because people are really riled up, things are crazy, and as I pull up to this, to this church, I see hundreds of people sitting in the parking lot, and I'm like, maybe they haven't opened the doors, maybe it just got out, um, but this still, this seems actually like a lot of people in the parking lot, and as I walk to the door, I realize that these, this is in fact overflow, that the church is full to capacity, over a thousand people are inside, and these hundreds of people are waiting for the entirety of the forum so they can be told by others who come outside what had been discussed inside of it. So this is like three, four hundred people standing in a parking lot in the middle of August, it's 98 degrees outside, waiting so they can hear about what was talked about inside this forum inside. And that, that was the moment, this is, I've been in Ferguson, Missouri for three hours of what will end up being 3,000 hours, and that was the moment where I was like, all right, this is something a little, this is something deeper, this is something bigger in this community with these people. Um, I'd met up with, one of the biggest tools for me there was that I already 
was very active on social media. I was already involved in a lot of these worlds. Again, I found out of the shooting through a friend's Instagram account um, and then saw another friend's tweets about it. But I kind of very quickly, even as I was getting on the plane and boarding the plane in, in D.C., and I'm, and I'm following all the lo kind of the local bloggers. I'm following the, a bunch of local teens, essentially, who've been showing up and were at the memorial, were taking pictures. I'm getting them to follow me back, so I'm direct messaging them. Where should I go? What should I do? I'm coming to town. What hasn't been told? And I'm having these kind of robust conversations with them as I'm on my way to St. Louis before I'm even there. And so I arranged to meet up with two or three of them. Let's meet at this forum. Find me in the parking lot. And so I meet up with them. Um, one of them, Janetta Elzey, ended up becoming one of the most well-known of the kind of young Ferguson protester leaders. Um, she's now like a big deal, um, but this was day two, and so she was like some girl I was meeting in a parking lot. And so we, we meet up, and I'm like, all right, I want you to take me to where, kind of where, the, where everything happened. Like, where's the shooting site? Where was this looting last night? I don't know this place at all. Jump in the car, let's go. So we drive back <coughs> that way. We drive back that way, and we hop out of the car, and we start walking, and, and what people, for spatial context, like Ferguson is a suburb. This is an inner city, and it's not like the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's a socioeconomically diverse, pretty racially diverse suburb. Um, these are suburban side streets, a lot of one ways, a lot of long winding roads. Um, Michael Brown of Shot Canfield Drive is a side street. Um, and then you have some main stretches that have strip malls in them. And so we're walking up one of these side streets, and, and through these you know nice suburban yards basketball hoops and cars in the driveway and and we hear this we hear this noise these protesters have gotten to this argument with the police officers there's a standoff happening where the police are trying to disperse what had been a relatively peaceful protest if angry um, and not even a coordinated act of protest in reality a lot of residents coming out of their homes still very upset about the shooting that happened two days ago and as we're standing and talking to this man in the corner um, of these two streets, you know, I'm, why'd you come out today? And, I'm, and he said, you know, I'm not a part of any protest, I'm not political, but last night when things got violent, someone punched out one of the windows of my truck, and so I'm going to stand out here and make sure nothing nothing happens, if things get crazy, you know, I, I want to protect my, you know, protect my, my house and my home, my family's inside. And so as we're standing in this yard, um, we start we start hearing this noise like what is going on like something's getting shot and next to us lands a tear gas canister and he literally grabs me and we get jump behind a bush and that began what ended up being a the, that was the first night that officers deployed tear gas and rubber bullets against those who had gathered in protest both violently and nonviolently um, and began what was a very long night of marathon reporting I was out in that street until one or two or three a.m. until they'd actually dispersed everyone. Um, and it became so clear to me in that very first night as I talked to people, as I talked to teenagers who were being tear gassed and crying and trying to find their families. And you see a lot of people who just got caught in this. This is a suburban neighborhood. And so you hear all this craziness going out on outside, and so you step outside of your house, and then the whole block gets tear gassed, and then, you're, then your eyes are burning. Um, and, and you also had a lot of people who were trying to get home from work. This was kind of early evening time, and so you had people who were getting off the bus and then caught in the middle of this. But it was very apparent very early. Every person I talked to, had a had some very specific story, a specific anecdote, and a specific distrust for the law enforcement there. Uh, there was a very specific illegitimacy of the government as is in this place. And, and that, in some ways, I think is the most important thing to understand about Ferguson, Missouri, and about so many other communities. That, because those, especially those of us who live in Boston, in D.C., in New York, in L.A., in Philadelphia, we, we see everything through the prism that of our world, of where we're from, of how think that, that for the most part people are 
people and systems and government institutions are generally good. They might be a little corrupt. They're generally good. Things are generally... The, the communities we live in are generally productive. Um, they've generally buried a lot of the ghosts of the past. Um, but what we forget is that, you know, in the United States, there are 50 different states that essentially operate as 50 different countries with 50 different specific histories, especially as they relate to race, and specific kind of geographic and socioeconomic and demographic issues as they relate to race. And so we... And so as I learned more about St. Louis, I learned more about Missouri, I, I realized that so much of this, so much of this distrust, again, was not about this shooting. It was about, it was about the, the guy who'd gotten pulled over the week before and felt like he was, he was manhandled a little bit, who I met that first night while we were getting tear gassed. It was about, there's now, now a, a guy, I, I joke with him all the time, he, he became one of the kind of faces of Ferguson, the iconic picture of the guy holding the bag of chips and like America um, shirt and he's throwing the tear gas canister back at the police. So I interviewed that guy that first night when we first got tear gassed. He was just like some kid standing across the street from me. And so we talk and he tells me, he goes, you know, listen, when all this is over, when this all stops and you got media all goes away, we're still going to be stuck here in this place. This, this is still going to be our environment. It's still where we live. And the reason we're so upset is because we want to fix the, fix the things about where we live. And that was very poignant to me, in part because he ended up becoming this kind of meme of Ferguson, but this was before he ever knew that or that would have happened. That didn't happen. That picture was a week later. Um, I see all that to say that, you know, my, one of my reporting strategies in Ferguson was I wanted to try to, so often, um, and I know this a little bit because I'm trained this way from having worked in Boston, which is very tribal and very parochial and very... Boston is a city where we, we, I like to say that we have like a perpetual younger or, or middle child syndrome. Like everyone's picking on us and we're not appreciated and this is the best place in the world. Don't you say we're not. We're just as good as New York. I mean, who cares that our trains aren't going to run again until mid-March? Like, we're just as good as, you know, like, we're just as good as New York. What are you talking about? It's a world-class city. And so, and so... You understand that, especially for me, who was someone who wasn't from Boston, who came and covered Metro Boston, covered Boston politics, and covered news here, I understood, I had to understand all the things I didn't understand about this place. I had to go to that extra town hall, that extra community forum, I had to make that extra round of calls and sit down for those extra coffees to comprehend this learning gap I had, that I wasn't going to, that there's these things I don't know, these things I don't understand, there's a cultural and a specific history here. And it's very easy, especially once you're at like a national outlet. You drop in these places and you think you can just write this definitive account of Ferguson, Missouri. You know, let, let, me, let me paint you this picture from the sleepy suburb of, of St. Louis. And, and we fall into that. You know, I was, I was joking earlier. You know, you, we, we've all read that New York Times piece, the swooping piece about this place that this reporter's never been before until yesterday. And so one of, the, one of my goals when I dropped in there, and in some ways it's the nature of the beast. You're writing for these national publications and you're trying to paint this picture of this place. You don't even really know how to paint it. But I decided I wanted to cover it more like a metro reporter covering a city that I lived in. Um, that I wanted to have as many conversations with as many people as possible to de develop as deep and has nuanced an understanding of this place. To write as often as possible. To not just drop in and then write one piece at the end of the week. But I'm going to write two things a day, every day I'm here. And at the end of that, maybe I might actually have something to say in some swooping way. Maybe I'll actually understand this place. Um, and the other thing, I tried to partner that, because that was how I took my writing, my newspaper work, my articles. But I also said, if I'm going to do this thing, if I'm going to cover this story, um, I want to show people this place, because I'd never been here. I'd never been to this place. I don't understand what this place looks, what it looked like. I didn't understand the spatial context. And so I tried to use social media as robustly as possible 
not necessarily to talk, not even to broadcast, not to be giving commentary, which I did do some, I did some analysis, but more so to show people things. So a lot of pictures, a lot of short video, a lot of, it's how can I take you, if you're sitting in your office in DC or in New York or in Kansas or in California or in Wyoming, and you wanna know what this place is that's on the news. And the cable is only gonna show you that same five second loop of the same burning building for days. They're gonna show you the same building over and over and over again. You know exactly what the, the burning gas station looks like because we've all seen it for hours of loop. But what does the block next door to that look like? What does the home look like? What does the protest look like before it gets violent and it's just a bunch of kids? And so I try to do that a lot, a lot of that as well. Um, and I think that that, and the last thing I'm gonna say before I kinda like, I'd much rather just be a little more conversational. I could ramble all day, but I, it'd be more fun if we talk. Um, the last thing I'll say is I think that one of the things that I think those strategies served me really well and served the post, the Washington Post really well. It really helped propel our coverage in a way that I think a lot of other outlets um, eventually tried to mimic. Um, but I also think that one of the lessons of Ferguson is is it's a lesson that if you don't tackle those stories this way, you're going to be you're going to lose your relevance and you're going to lose uh, that level of being essential. Um, in the past people weren't empowered to tell their own stories. Someone, in Ferguson, uh, a kid growing up in Ferguson, Missouri, a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 32-year-old mother of four in Ferguson, Missouri, Missouri never could have told her own story. The best chance for her story to be told is if the New York Times shows up and writes some big swooping thing that might get, might get half of it wrong or might overstate some things, but that's the best shot she had because you're in an all-black suburb near St. Louis, the local paper's not really covering you, not covering the nuances of your life. Um, but what we saw in Ferguson was that just as much as people like me could tell, were telling the story, you had access to primary sources, to primary documents, to real people who really live there telling their own stories. I'll never forget the, the guy who watched the shooting happen from his apartment and live tweeted it. And he was basically like, fuck, the cops just killed someone outside of my apartment. And that, those tweets were completely, they all got retweeted thousands of times that were compelling. And this was his, this guy communicating his own experience, this, this thing that happened to him in a way that I could never do that. I could show up and interview him and write a story about what he saw, but social and the internet allows people to tell their own stories in a way that we couldn't previously. And what that means is that if, if the people of Ferguson don't like your coverage, that they don't think it's fair, if they don't think it's nuanced, if they don't think it's real, if they don't think you really understand them, they're not going to click on it, and they're not going to propagate it. They're not going to share it, because they don't have to anymore. And, and what we've seen very often is um, um, both myself and colleagues of mine and colleagues for other papers and other outlets, we've seen people in Ferguson and protest leaders and young activists take to task media organizations over specific lines of specific stories. Um, and, and I think that that's so different than what it was before. You know, we used to exist in this ivory tower of news where we would write an article. We'd show up at an event and we would decide if it was worth covering. Is this newsworthy? Is it not? It would be a speech or it would be a talk. It would be a protest. And we'd show up and then we'd, and then the people who were there, who participated in, who was a, it was affecting, they would have to wait until the six o'clock news to see if we decided that it was newsworthy enough. Or they'd have to wait until the, the paper the next morning to decide if we, see if we decided if it was newsworthy enough. Now in real time, people can influence what we cover and how we cover it. If every news, or, if every news organization but one is at an event, the people who are there participating in the event can shame the other news organization into showing up right now in real time. Or can say, hey, look at these pictures from this thing. Why aren't you guys here? Is this going to be on the news tonight? And it empowers people in a way that they've never, they've never been before. Um, we saw that so much in Ferguson. We saw so many stories there 
and the depth of stories and the nuance of stories being told that might not have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago if, if this had been something that happened 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and so what that meant was that the reporters who were able to excel, and I don't even include myself on that list, but the other reporters who were able to excel did it in part because they were able to communicate in these new platforms and communicate both with directly with sources and also to take that feedback. It was a two-way conversation versus a publishing conversation. And that really changed the tenor um, and the depth of a lot of our coverage. Um, and so I look back at, we're six months out, um, you know, and there's a lot, a ton happened between, <laughs> between that first day and between yesterday or whenever that was. Um, you know, we saw the arrest, we, myself included, but we saw the arrest of three dozen journalists down there who were covering the story. We saw, um, we saw the state and, and the federal government create commissions and task force to address, address issues of policing. Um, and that's going to be, that's one of the biggest question marks is what's the legacy of Ferguson. And it feels kind of as if, okay, but this stopped. People aren't so upset in the street anymore. But we're having a real conversation about policing in America that we haven't had in decades. And there hasn't been large-scale policing reform in 15 years. And if this is something that spurs that, it would be interesting five years from now to see if that really is a legacy piece of this. Um, then we saw the violence erupt again in November when the decision everyone knew was coming came um, not to indict. Um, officer Darren Wilson. And then two, two weeks later, the decision not to indict the officer in the Eric Gardner case. And then the week after that, the release of the video of Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old in Cleveland, um, my hometown. And so I say all that to say, you know, we're six months out, almost seven months out now. And we wonder, the biggest question we all ask is, what's the legacy of Ferguson? What's the legacy? What, what are the lessons we learned from this? And, and we certainly can't answer the first one. We don't know what the legacy is yet. We don't know what change might be enacted because of the events there and elsewhere. But for media, like I said, I certainly think there are some lessons. The first is that, the first, like I said, is that you have to engage people in platforms and mediums where they, where they are. Um, you have to, two, you have to empower them to tell their own stories. And three, and three, that because of this new feedback mechanism, because people can talk to us in real time, we we have to be more responsive and we have to be more willing to interact with people. We're no longer up in that tower. We're no longer insulated by our jobs and our business cards and our like fancy publishing methods. That people can give us feedback and um, can both build us up and tear us down. The people who we cover now have more voice than they ever had before about our coverage. And that means that our coverage has to be more responsive. Um, and that's something that, you know, as a reporter, I learned in real time. On every single story, I wonder what the feedback's going to be and the public feedback that other people are going to see about this story that I wrote. Um, and as a media organization, as someone who works for a media organization, it's this idea that I want to work for a place and I want to help instill an environment and understanding in the places I work that that we have to be responsive to that. Because in reality, the journalism we do should be about the people who we do the journalism for and the journalism about. And that and that we have to take that feedback from them. And we have to have those conversations with them. And that's what's gonna empower us to tell their stories better, which hopefully is our goal. So I just rambled about a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> what, um, what can I talk about or what can we talk about that's gonna be more interesting than me talking about? I'm gonna ask a f couple of questions and then we'll open it up to, uh, to the room. I want to go back just a moment um, and ask you personally, how did you become a journalist? Why did you want to become a journalist? So I don't, I don't completely know the answer, but I, I know, I don't know, I don't even know how to, what to say. I mean, you seem genuinely passionate about it, excited about it, so, with a sense of mission and of professionalism that you don't get to work at the, Wall, at the Washington Post unless you proved yourself. So my dad's in journalism, has always been in journalism. I grew up in a family that 
that value journalism. My dad was a, um, now he's, he's an editor at a pharmaceutical magazine based in Cleveland, but when I was growing up, he was a newspaper reporter, um, and eventually a magazine editor and a, and a television reporter for a little bit. And so I grew up, in fact, like, uh, people always say, like, okay, well, dad's, that's why you want to do it. It's like, no, my dad and I hated each other. I was, like, the cocky oldest kid who was, like, getting in trouble, and he was like, I just want my kid to go to school and get good grades. What are you doing? So we clash all the time. Um, but I lived in a house where the first person who woke up in the morning walked in on the driveway and brought the newspaper in. And at 6 o'clock, we would have dinner, and then we'd sit down and watch the news as a family. And that was every day of my life for my formative years. But eventually I went to high school and was, like, doing other stuff. But... Um, I think that that instilled in me a sense of nobility in this craft and in this field that I think a lot of people don't, especially a lot of people now, don't grow up with. This idea that the people who provide the news are important. They're an important part of the society and the structure we live in. They were an important part of my life. Sam Champion, who's now a big deal, was my weatherman in North Jersey. And so every day I sat down and he told me if I was going to have school the next day. He was an important part of my life. Like Sam Champion like held the keys to like my happiness, whether or not we were going to have a snow day or not. And, and, and the same goes for, and you got to know, I, I knew my newspaper columnist. I knew my, the, the reporters who covered the communities I lived in. And so, um, so it was always a viable, it was always a credible, it was always a noble cause or, or thing to go into. And then I lucked out that I went to, I was on a, my middle school, I was in middle school that had a newspaper. I worked for, I've worked for, a, I've worked for a newspaper every day since I was 13. Um, and so eventually it just outlasted everything else. It was, it was a thing you do as a hobby as a kid. And then it was like, wait, I can like go to school to do this thing, this, the hobby that I do. Um, and so that's really what it's, that's really kind of how I got into it. Well, I know you must be asked by younger people <clears throat> about whether it's a good thing for them to do too. Yes. Yeah, so what do you tell them? It is. I mean, you have to. You have to know. It's not a. I think for a long time. I think for a while now, journalism was a very kind of liberal arts of liberal artsy field. It was something you went into. You didn't go if you needed to pay your bills. You you don't go to journalism like because this is your made in America. I'm getting out of poverty story. I'm going to go be a journalist. Like that's not what you did. You did it if you had some level of disposable income and some level of ability to kind of take care of yourself. And you did it much more in an idealistic way. Um, but what that meant is that I think you it, it became a field in, in a lot of ways of a lot of... It became a very middle class field. And it's always been that way. But it was a middle class field that had a lot of people who weren't quite sure of it. They didn't necessarily get into it because they had a passion for it, and, and many people did do it for that reason, but you know, a lot of people who got into it, a lot of my college classmates who got into it because it was a thing you could do. It was a good enough career choice. We could, I could do this, and maybe I could go be a lawyer afterwards if I don't like it. What I, when I talk to people, I encourage, you know, for me, I went into this because, I know I'm not going to make any money, but I, I went into it because I care about it and I want to, because it's what I really want to do. I want to tell people's stories. I want to... I want to enact change in the world I live in by empowering people who, aren't, who don't otherwise have a means of telling their own stories. Um, and I think that what we're going to see now, especially because the internet in a lot of ways is a great equalizer, we're going to see a lot more people who that is their type of motivation. It's a very specific, they come from a specific place and because of that they want to tell the story of the people that they lived with or grew up around. And I think a lot of those people are going to be more empowered um, to succeed in this field because there are so many fewer barriers of entry. You can get in now. You don't need the formal education the way you used to need the formal education. You don't need, you don't even necessarily need to be doing it full time to have an impact because in a lot of ways, on the internet, a, a link is a link, a click is a click. You're, you can be blogging on the side, you can be writing on the side, you can write one piece a year, and if it's the best piece, it's gonna be, some, it's gonna be something we all see. And that wasn't always the case previously. And so 
I encourage people to go in the field because I think it's a really amazing, like amazing moment right now where we're figuring out everything's so undecided. The whole, all of journalism could collapse tomorrow or tomorrow we could all figure out how to like do it way better than we already do. And I assume it'll be the, the, the latter, but I think that, I hope, but I think that that makes it a really exciting time. It's so much fun. Are you, are you basically a, a sort of a creature of the Jeff Bezos Washington Post? as opposed to the Marty Baron Boston Globe, even though Marty Baron is at the Washington Post now. And I, yeah, and I knew Marty in Boston and certainly know Marty now. Um, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that the Jeff Bezos Washington Post quite exists. Does everyone understand what I'm talking about? Uh, Jeff Bezos is the, is the man who uh, owns, effectively owns Amazon.com. He bought the Washington Post from the Graham family mm -hmm. and he has, uh, you know, in his own way, influenced it. Mm -hmm. I, have, I mean, I'm, I'm, Certainly. I'm inferring something. Yes. What you're saying, because he's a guy who genuinely believes in the web and the <laughs> power of technology and using technology to make the Washington Post something that was uh, comparable in stature and in service and in prestige, and prestige. to what it what it was and what and what you, and it would it had lost some of. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is that you, I would think, would be just the embodiment of what the kind of journalism that Jeff Bezos wants the Washington Post to do. Well, I, I like to think that. If you could send people some emails and tell them <laughs> that. But, but I think that, I think that, um, I, I think that one of the things I take from Bezos, and I've read up on him a lot, is that you look at one of the things that a lot of Amazon and kind of their mission and their goals and how they operate is to get rid of kind of cognitive overhead and make the u the ex user experience as simple as possible. Are, are you are you a little tipsy after wine and want to buy these new pillowcases? You can do it with one click. You don't need to enter. You don't need to enter any credit cards. We can do it with one. I mean, the whole Amazon Prime model, the whole one click buying model is how can we make this process as easy as humanly possible for you so that you'll come back. Why do I buy stuff from Amazon? Because it's easier than buying stuff from other places. It's more enjoyable. And they guarantee that if this bookstore guy from Nevada rips me off, they're going to give me my money back. I can trust them, and they make the experience easy. And in some ways, now that people have so much more choice in the media they consume, they don't have to pick up the newspaper from the driveway anymore. They can read whatever they want from wherever they want it. We have to be much more about how do we deliver the stories in a way that gets rid of all the nonsense for the reader and just tells them what they want to know and gives them access to the content they want. Um, I think that as you look at the Post, um, and the Post's trajectory is certainly like way above my pay grade in, in, in my head, but, but you look at the Post, I think one of the things I've been so encouraged by um, in the year I've been here is that you know we hire someone almost every day, uh, it seemed like. And so many other people, some of my new colleagues, people we're bringing in, are really young, really awesome, innovative thinkers. People who, I, I joke that it's like the team of the future. That it's like, we haven't quite figured this out yet, but like three years from now, we're going to be awesome. And I think that that, and to me, that's the team I want to be on. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be on the like team that won the championship last year and is just trying to piece together some role players so maybe they'll be okay again next year. I want to be the team that's like, listen, we get, we're going to get one more good draft pick next year and then we're going to the finals because we're going to be awesome. That's the team I want to be on. And I think that's where the post is. We're completely we're retooling and we've retooled in a way and we've brought all this kind of talent into into a newsroom and said figure it out guys like you're all in the same room figure it out and that's that's been so much fun one final question how important ultimately do you think ferguson is going to prove to be it's so i mentioned my friend matt pierce at the LA times he um 
we were having a conversation once. Um, a reporter, an editor we both knew, or knew of, had died, and we were sharing his obit back and forth, and we were noting all the, like, really remarkable things in this guy's obituary. He'd, like, been in a the submarine thing and a plane crash, all these crazy stuff, and, and Matt asked me, he goes, you think... Brian Williams, you talking? <laughs> 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 Ooh. <laughs> but this guy... <laughs> this this guy had and, and so and Matt asked me he goes do you think Ferguson's in either of our obits and I said that's a really interesting question it's it's very hard in the moment to it's so hard in the moment to figure out what the moment is and what the parameters of the moment are and when the moment ends and what the significance of it is like I said I, when I look at when I look at Ferguson I, I think I look at it as a culmination when 30 years from now we're not I don't even know that we talk Ferguson will be one of the linchpins of this thing, but I think we're looking at a whole period of time that begins in the early, in the mid-2000s, maybe with Katrina in 06, and Katrina and the election of the first black president, and the Gina Six, and Trayvon Martin, and Troy Davis, and Oscar Grant, and you have this whole period of time where we have this constant, con we're locked in this constant conversation about race, and that was like, in the 90s, Clinton was like, let's have a national dialogue on race. We've been locked in a perpetual dialogue on race since the election of President Obama, period. We have been, for better or worse. And we're now, and Ferguson in some ways is where that conversation started to turn the corner in, into action in, in multiple ways, in part because it literally turned the corner into, we, this is the last time we're gonna burn the city down. Like it actually, the anger actually literally turned into action in Ferguson, for better or worse. And what that prompted was all the elected officials in a lot of places and the society as a whole said, okay, we can no longer just talk about this thing. Maybe we have to do something. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what the legs and the legacy of this White House task force, like I said, if it brings some type of, some measure, level of policing reform, that could be, that could be significant in ways we don't know. Um, I, I think that in Ferguson, I think in Missouri, um, that place is certainly going to be reformed. Um, they're going to make some changes to municipal government. They're likely going to get the, the judges likely going to toss out the way they do their elections. It's going to completely change the democracy there. Um, that's going to have a real lasting impact. And so it's, like I said, it's so hard when we're in the moment. But I think we can safely say even six months out that that this was, you know, a lot of people who didn't, a lot of people who either weren't inclined to want to have a conversation about these things or who were very skeptical of the specifics of what was going on said, oh, this is, we'll get over this, the media is going to leave, it's going to be fine, it's going to go away. And I think that, you know, we're still seeing, we're still seeing demonstrations in a dozen cities to this day. Um, and so it, you can say whatever you want about the shooting itself, you can say whatever you want about the protest or about our law enforcement or, or about our world and our society. You, you can't say that this didn't make some type of difference and that it doesn't still have some staying power or momentum, because I think it certainly does. I'm, I'm going to open it first to students uh, and then uh, to the rest. Yes. My name is Derwin DeBose. I'm a Sheila C. Johnson fellow at the Center for Public Leadership, oh. and my research is actually on communities like Ferguson that really? kind of made that demographic shift to mm -hmm. majority minority, the lack. It, but, but it doesn't. But it doesn't follow. Yeah, the representation doesn't follow. So you talked about how social media gives uh, you know a single mom in Ferguson agency to tell her story. Mm -hmm. So how how does one live in a community for you know? most of their lives or, you know, their entire lives with young people and not notice and, and as a community do something about the fact that, you know, we're 65% of the population, but there's only two cops that look like that. Exactly. How does that, like, lay latent for so long? And so I've got, I've got an operative, operative theory on this, and I cracked this with uh, Jason Johnson's uh, professor at, I want to say he's at Oberlin, um, 
but he actually grew up in the area. Um, is is like a uh, African American poli sci guy, um, and he and him and I have talked about this a lot. And and the theory is it, it's a few things. The first is that most people, it's still as a community goes through these types of shifts, your population is remains largely transient. And so as the demographics change, you have very few black residents of Ferguson who have lived in Ferguson their whole life or who have lived here in Ferguson their whole life. They might have lived in some different places um, because you have a population that is largely socially up, uh, upperly mobile in terms of socioeconomics, but not wildly upwardly mobile in the social economics. They went from be living in a really bad neighborhood in East St. Louis to like, we can f afford a not so great apartment in Ferguson. But our schools are better there, so we're gonna, we're gonna do that. We're gonna get out. Um, and what that means is, and, and, and that plays into, like I said, my theory, and part of this is from my own background and my life and my upbringing. My, my, you know, my dad is the first person to go to college from his family, grew up in terrible government housing and the projects. He got out of high school in three years, he got out of college in three years. He was like, I'm getting out of here, I'm gonna do this thing. My dad will put up with all types of things. He'll put up, we, we, his, all he wants is his kids to be able to go to good schools. We live in the suburbs because he wants his kids to go to good schools. Because they can get schools, they can do whatever they want. That was the, what was lacking in his life and his, in his upbringing, so he's like, Listen, I don't really care that much if the cops don't quite look at us. I don't really care that much about who's on our city council. I do. He does. He's involved. But in reality, as long as the schools are all right, for a suburban black family, for many suburban black families, that is the only consideration. Because, in fact, they live there specifically for the schools. And I think, so I think that's a big, I think that's an understated part of it. And actually, uh, and this is a story that hasn't been completely told yet, and I don't know that it ever will be, but... Before, before everything in Ferguson, they, um, earlier in 2014, there was a remarkably popular black school superintendent in the Ferguson Florissant School District, a guy named Art McCoy. He was the star. Um, he, had grown, he had grown up in the neighborhood, was like the youngest certified teacher in the history of Missouri, youngest certified school administrator, the like black star from the neighborhood. This was the guy. And he got very, very abruptly suspended indefinitely by an all-white school board. Um, and they, you had these town hall meetings where thousands of people would show up demanding answers, and they would ne and they never publicly said why they ran this guy out. Um, and you saw these demonstrations, these protests in Ferguson, Missouri, of these suburban black folks who lived in this place because they cared about their schools. And now the one thing they had, their guy, at the schools, the thing they care about, was was just abruptly stripped from them in a way that seemed kind of veiled and racist and strange. Certainly, there were questions. And a few months later, Mike Brown shot and killed in the streets. And I think that that those are the things that you know. First, it, when I say it's more about more than the shooting, it's oh, it's about so much more than the shooting. This was li about a community of people saying this isn't about one slight or one thing. This isn't about the cops not being diverse or pulling us over too much. It's not even about the shooting. It's about we we finally hit this point where we're deciding that our local government is illegitimate. That the social contract is broken, that this doesn't work, that we're not either our represented through our schools, we're not represented through our government, we're not represented through our cops. And so you know what? Who cares that you told us to disperse? Because we're not going to. And that was a, a on so many of those nights uh, with tear gas and the protesting and things would get violent at night, myself and some other reporters would walk around and we'd be like, this is like the Lord of the Flies. The social contract is completely broken. There's no, this is complete anarchy in these streets tonight. And I think that's a, that's a big, that's how I think about it at least. Yes. <laughs> My name is Malik. I'm an MPS from here at the Kennedy School. The question is, how do you manage pressure in the midst of such a heated issue? You know, as a reporter, like yeah, as you said, like the communities have a lot of expectations from you, and then the cops always complain that their point of view was never mm -hmm. heard. 
And then, like, uh, I, I work as a reporter at times, so, like, if I don't take sides of the communities, people start bullying me on Twitter. So how do you manage both sides, you know? It's a lot of pressure from both sides. How did you work there? Not well enough. Didn't manage it well enough. But I think that it it's remarkably tough, because, like I said, it we now get this feedback so immediate. In real time, while you're doing it, we're getting tear gas, and I have people like picking a fight about a word I used on Twitter, and I'm like, well, like okay, dude, but like I got some stuff going on right now. And you're you're watching, like you got these people sitting there in the basement watching a live stream of what's happening, and you're like, yeah, people are people are trying to stop them from looting this beauty shop, and some guy's like, no, actually, I'm watching the live stream, and in reality, they are looting. You're like, dude, I'm standing outside the beauty shop. Leave me alone. Like, don't tweet at me right now. But and so it create it 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 creates this remarkable pressure, and it was it. You know, like I said, you don't you don't realize you're in the moment till you're in the moment. You're in it, and you're like, this is the both the craziest and like best and worst thing that's ever happened in my entire life. Turn it all off. Um, but I, I think that one of the things is I tried to, especially especially um, during some of the most crazy times and nights. I tried to as much as possible let people tell their own stories. So very often I would take a picture of someone withholding their sign and I would tweet it with their name and they'd give me a line and that's what I would send out. Uh, in that it was in many ways trying to use whatever platform I had to just amplify whatever anyone was saying, whatever was happening. And also, and I think especially, because it's a really good question about the police and kind of telling that side of it and that issue of it. And that was something that we all got a lot of criticism for in part because those of us who worked as reporters know it's not like you. I can just walk up to some guy to street at a protest and find out why he's there and talk to him. I can't just real. I can walk up to the cop and talk to him. He's not gonna say anything to me. He's certainly not gonna give me his name. He's certainly, you know, it's like I can't just do an interview with him. Um, you have over time, you have some of those interactions. Anytime I had those kind of casual interactions with officers, I would try to send that information out. If I was interacting with police, um, if I was having a side conversation with a cop, I would try to, in some ways, summarize that. If only that, so that in my online coverage, it was included, that that perspective was there a little bit. And you don't get to cross your T's and dot your I's the same way you do for the paper. I don't know his age and how long he's lived in Ferguson. I don't have the whole checklist of things my newspaper editor might want for my story. But on my Twitter feed, I'd be like, yeah, I was just chatting with this, this officer from Ferguson. He said X, Y, and Z. And I can do that in a way that's a little less meticulously sourced and built out because it's a more casual medium. And, and that's a way to kind of hopefully build out a little bit more of that. Um, you're right, though, the, the pressures are, are can be ridiculous. As you were talking, the, the legacy of Ferguson is still undefined, but what do you think the impact of all the media coverage and you know positives and negatives, what do you see um, in terms of impact on the community? I think that we... On the community or on the country? You mean on the community of Ferguson? Well, yeah, the community of Ferguson. I think that... Foremost. Yeah, I think that... We live in a time where, because of the internet and because of social, we are empowered to believe we know everything about everything and in reality know nothing about anything. We have so many more casual encounters with the news. You go to log into your email and you see some headlines. You see your aunt is posting about Ebola on Facebook. And so, so we all think we know something about Ebola but don't know anything about Ebola. Like, none of us has read, some of us maybe, but like really read that deep article that tells you what you need to know. But we all have seen some Facebook posts about Ebola, so we all think we have a consciousness about what's happening with it. Um, the deep saturation of media coverage often masks and drowns out the depth of media coverage. Mm -hmm. That no one has to interact with, if, if I'm going to take pride and I'm going to write this nuanced stuff and this deep stuff and tell all these stories, that's great if you're one of the people who specifically reads what I write. 
But if you're someone who's just wading into the waters of all of this coverage, the chances that you're going to find what I do versus what someone else does is very slim. Um, I think that in Ferguson, on the, on the good side, that was a place, and there are many places like this in the United States, that are sorely missing a heavy-hitting newspaper that asks hard questions of their elected officials. That no one, whether it be the Ferguson police, the mayor, the city council, the local representatives, have been asked hard questions about the things that pertain to this community in modern history. And that's not even a complete fault of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. It's a, it's a Midwestern newspaper that's had cutbacks, like my hometown paper, The Plain Dealer, or the Detroit Papers. But the reality is, in the heartland and outside of the media centers, you have places that really desperately need someone to come in and be like, hey, this is really messed up, the stuff you're doing. And I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to send some records requests in, and I'm going to publish some things, and then people are going to go, wait a second. And that is what, that being, national media storms in, and it was like, I could tell you everything you ever want to know about Ferguson. I know everyone's salary, I know, and that stuff, that empowers the people there. Now, they have information they might not have had otherwise. The negative is that, and this is something that people are very conscious of, and again, this goes back to like the suburban political thought or political rhetoric of, you know, these are people who got out, they made it in America, they made it to the suburbs, they have good schools, and now they're watching their community, one block of their community, four buildings of their community, burning on CNN for 24 hours straight for days and days and days and days and days. And there's does something to the psyche and the, psych and the kind of where they are psychologically, this idea that this place, this place they care, they love, they grew up in, they live, where all of their real equity is, that's where they live is now just this international symbol of like America's fraught grapple with race and law enforcement and legacy of slavery. That's like, that is what Ferguson, Missouri is. And that does have psychological effects and it does have a real impact on the people who live there. And I think that, and I think we have a responsibility and this is what I think we didn't do well, was to tell, to provide spatial context. Three blocks of Ferguson burnt. It's a pretty big suburb. And so it, I think that was one of the things we missed. You, then you. Thank you. My name is Roger Qi. I'm, I'm an Indian pharaoh from China. Hmm. I'm very curious about your uh, uh, question is that when you are very, very get involved with so many social medias, how can you stop being too anxious or attracted by what, what is happening on the social medias? I mean, will your job will affect your daily life, personal life. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard because I think that we live in a time where, especially with social, we live in a time where you're no longer, you're, by, you're no longer just some mysterious person whose name's at the top of an article. That a lot of people, the reporters I follow, whose work I follow, I follow them because I feel like I know them personally. I follow them on Twitter, I interact with them on Facebook, I see, I know when they're at a concert, I know when they're having fun with their friends, I know what joke they think is really funny or what TV show they watch, and I also read their pieces because they send them out. We interact with so many reporters now because of their personalities, because of who they are as people. But what that means is that, as a reporter, who you are as a person is now open to all the scrutiny that before it never would have. It, you know, in the past, I, I'd, I'd write stuff for wherever it is, the Boston Globe, Washington Post, and I would just be a name at the top of the article. No one would know anything about me. No one would ever know anything about me or have any means to know anything about me. And now everyone has the means to know everything about me all the time, part because I can't stop tweeting all the time. But I think that <coughs> it, it makes it a really fraught and really interesting, you know, I think the internet is this beauty because it's like a wild, the internet's a wild west. You have people out there who are just doing whatever they want to do for good or for bad. 
And it means that on social, if you're out there, if you're gonna kind of, if you're gonna be who you are in these spaces, you open yourself up to a lot of both criticism and a lot of scrutiny, um, a lot of feedback on things that aren't about your work. Um, but I think that it, in some ways, it's an occupational hazard for the time we live in, and it's something that's necessary. It's that like for every person who's kind of a jerk to me about some personal thing. I, I also have five people who never would have been exposed to my work or who never would have been in an audience of mine and never would have interacted. I have a lot of meaningful relationships via social media that uh, people I don't even, I don't know. Like people who just read everything I write and give me feedback and I talk to them and they, oh, I wrote this thing. I wonder what that lady in Texas thinks of it because she always tells me what she thinks about everything I write and then she tells me and then I know. And so, and so it really is, it, like I said, it, 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 you have huge pros and cons. I think that one thing for me that I've tried to do, especially post-Ferguson, is I tried to be much more siloed about how I use social. I'll take long periods of time, and by long I mean like a day and a half, but like long periods of time where I don't get on Twitter. Or, or like specific, like this week I'm gonna like, this week I'm gonna try to interact with people more on Facebook and not pay attention as much as this to Twitter. Um, and it's being more deliberate, because in some ways, especially because it's in our phone, like, Social can be all-consuming. You can feel like it's this constant newswire of things, and like I, I can't miss anything. If I'm not on Twitter right now, something might have happened, and I missed it, and I don't know. And it's taking the time and, the, and knowing, you know. Eventually, I had to be comfortable enough. Like, all right, I know this story. I'm well enough sourced in this place. Like, if I'm off Twitter for an hour, nothing's gonna happen. I'm not gonna know about. Like, if something crazy really happens, someone's gonna text me about this. It's gonna be fine. And doing that and then being able to divorce yourself from it a little bit and take a step back from it and not take it and not have it be so much of who I am and how I do my work. Yes. Hi, um, my name's Carolina and I'm a reporter for the Harvard Crimson. And I was wondering, um, we've seen in the recent news stories that many politicians have stepped down in this public media firestorms. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe that the mayor and the police chief that they haven't felt the sense of urgency to step down amidst so much um, criticism from the public. And my second mm -hmm. question, if it's possible, is yeah. can you speak about um, your arrest? Of course. Ferguson? We, um, what's interesting is there's a huge difference between, it's like crisis management. However, to go to crisis management, uh, one of the things I, I mean, you look at the way that Ferguson police chief and the Ferguson mayor handled it, and it, in some ways it's, the way they handled some things was like remarkably stunning for both good and bad reasons. But the fact that they weathered it is, is remarkably stunning and actually pretty impressive. And in part, it's because what the people on the internet say to you doesn't matter. It's about the the people who live in the place where you live, and the people who cast ballots to elect you or who pay your salaries. That like a bunch of angry people in New York can be angry with you all you want. What are they going to do, the mayor of Ferguson, Missouri? Nothing. I don't vote for the mayor of Ferguson, Missouri. And, and that was, in some ways, one of the lessons here. If you look at how a lot of the politicians handled it, whether it be locally, the mayor and the police chief, whether it be at the state level, the two senators, Claire McCaskill and Roy Blunt, the governor, Jay Nixon, you saw a lot of kind of couched and cautious statements. You saw a lot of kind of, we'll wait and see what happens, and we're going to ride this thing out, and we're going to see what happens, in part because all the angry people are angry people on the Internet, and they don't vote. And I think that, and if you look at, and the other thing is, if you look at, you're talking about a, a community that is systematically and historically disenfranchised, that black Ferguson, because there's a black Ferguson and a white Ferguson, the black Ferguson was the people locally who were angry. And black Ferguson historically doesn't really vote and doesn't have political power. So if you're the mayor of Ferguson, 
you, you didn't really pay that much attention to Black Ferguson in the first place. So who cares if they're upset now? And I think that that's, that's I think, part of the mindset and part of why people, like, people were able to weather this is because if you're taking them for, if you're taking a group of people for, uh, um, if you were taking them for granted for so long, why stop now? And you can ride this out and you're going to make it. And they've shown that they can ride it out and they can make it. Um, I think that we, and again, and they certainly were on the hot seat for a while, and I think there was also some, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff there where I, I believe the police chief was prepared to step down um, and had um, some dear friends at a great broadcast news outlet not prematurely reported that. I think he would have stepped down. Um, I think that, and so that goes back to how the media plays into all these things. Um, I think that we... <coughs> It, that's a, it's the limitation in some ways of media coverage. We put a lot of scrutiny on that. Uh, a lot of scrutiny on this mayor, on this police chief, on this system, on this local government. And it speaks to the limitations of it. We can come in and we can raise hell and we can ask all kinds of questions and publish all types of things. Local problems have to be solved locally. The, who, the person, who the mayor of Ferguson, Missouri is, is not determined about what articles I write. It's determined by the people who vote in Ferguson, Missouri. And I can write an article and I can get them riled up and that might lead them to do something. But it's nothing but... But media doesn't have as much power as we like to believe we do sometimes. Um, speaking which briefly on the, on the arrest, arrest, I think that, um, y you know, and so myself and Ryan Riley, the Huffington Post, um, who's now a good friend of mine, turns out he lives a block and a half away from me in D.C. Um, and so he, we, uh, we were the first journalists arrested in Ferguson. We were in this McDonald's a few blocks away from the shooting site, of which was essentially a newsroom. It was the only place with Wi-Fi on that, in that area of Ferguson, which meant every reporter who's been to Ferguson has been in that McDonald's because it's the only place to file. Everyone. We were all there all the time. And so there's this daytime protest going on. Um, we'd been covering it for hours. They had to sit in on the street. The cops were coming out with all this gear. People were getting great photos in the daylight of these, like, tanks. So, And so we go to charge our phones, and we look up, and we see that, the SWAT team has come in and they're surrounded us. Like, What's going on with the SWAT team? And they're like, all right, you guys should really go. Things are getting a little hot. Everyone should leave. And I'm like, all right, are you, so are you telling us, like, are we evacuating this thing? Or are you just giving us some like good faith due diligence? Like, hey guys, by the way, this craziness happening. Because if you're telling me a riot's about to happen at the McDonald's I'm at, as a reporter, I should probably stay exactly where I am. Like, if you're telling me the action's coming here, I'm not going somewhere else. What well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And and but I think that the I won't go all the way into it because I've talked about it a lot, but I think that one of the lessons here, and I said this earlier, I was talking to someone, is that um, it was a difference between a small town police department and a big city police department. There's no way if we're in New York City or in Boston or in D.C. that, that we or any of the other journalists get arrested. Because we all got arrested for asking pretty basic questions. Like, so are, so are you sure? Like, so are you evacuating? Do we have to leave or, or can we stay here? Pretty reasonable question to ask like some SWAT team trying to clear you from something, especially when you know nothing crazy is happening outside. Um, I have a, I, the reason I actually got detained was because they, they were ushering me out, and one officer told me to go in one direction, the other officer told me to go in the other direction, and I paused and was like, so which door do you guys want me to go out of? And they kind of conferred, and they're like, that one, and so I turned around, and my bag started to slip, and I was like, give me one second, officer, I have to fix this, and they were just like, screw it, let's take him. And that was why I got arrested, because um, I asked them what door I wanted, where I should go out of, my bag fell. And the, the manager of the McDonald's, Keith, really good guy, um, and I talk to him, I go back and visit him every time I'm in Ferguson. He mocks me every time he sees me. He's like, so you've gotten your bag adjusted yet? So what's to do with your bag? And so, like I said, I think the story of that, um, in closing there, is that it, a lot of police departments, especially in middle, Amer in middle America, 
don't know how to deal with media scrutiny, don't know how to deal with reporters, haven't been in these circumstances, and therefore are inclined to make some mistakes. And that was a mistake. Yes. So I actually started following you on Twitter during the marathon bombings because you were tweeting real time and happened to capture what happened to you at McDonald's on Twitter. Um, my question is pertaining to you personally, but also your profession, because as a storyteller, at some point you became the story. Um, where is, what do you think is your responsibility as a journalist, but also when you are the story and to yourself? I think that more than ever, especially because of the personal personal branding, and I hate that word, but the personal branding and the, the relationships we have with individual reporters, more than ever, reporters are part of the story. In reality, and in reality, reporters have always been part of the story. If you're writing about something happening in your community, you live in that community. You are part of the story. You are and not any less of a human being, any less of a person, because you happen to be a reporter. Um, and now we get to, in, in some ways, it's a more transparent and more honest interaction. That you know where I live and what I do and what I care about and what I don't, and so therefore you can gauge for yourself if I'm a fair, if I'm handling or covering this thing fairly. I'm not some anonymous name at the top of the story. Um, I think that it's it is it's really hard when to be thrust into this. Like I said, when you become part of the story, like everything about you is now up for scrutiny, especially on issues of like race that become heated and partisan. Like you are now something to be attacked, um, and that is unpleasant. But I think that. But I also think that, you know, we have a responsibility, above all, to, like, to fairness and honesty and, and, and I, in my measure, I think, transparency. And if something's happening to me, if something's happening in the, around me or to me, it's something I'm going to share. I'm not, and I, I had this moment where I started thinking about this, where I, I was getting beat up for either things I tweeted or things that, ways, ways I was covering things. And I, and I said, you know, I'm not going to stop witnessing and reporting and talking about the things happening around me um, because someone says it's I'm making it too much about me. I mean, frankly, my Twitter feed isn't by definition about me. It's my publishing platform about myself and about the work I'm doing. Um, but I think that we, there is a responsibility to, to, in your own head, separate those things and understand that the internet world is very different than the real world I live in. And, and my real friends and my real life and my real family and that like some jerk said something to me on the internet does not actually mean that like I am that thing that he said or that you know it, it's that it's a lot it's about more than that and so for me I've always I've worked really hard this last year and so far this year to reclaim some of that balance like I am who I am on the internet and that is certainly a reflection of who I am in the real world but but also an understanding that that doesn't that doesn't define me and it's not going to, and the criticisms you get in that space aren't going to define me either. Yes. Is that me? Hi, I'm Alicia Stewart. I'm an even fellow. Thanks for being here, Leslie. Of course. Um, I'm really curious to hear, you know, so much of the discussion, and you kind of touched on this in your introductory remarks about um, what are the takeaways for media mm -hmm. um, in terms of engagement and kind of meeting people where they are and, and um, incorporating those stories in. What do you think were the effective kind of um, either reporters or actual platforms that were getting it right, like as media itself kind of transitions and as these conversations transition from more um, talk to action. I'm curious what was your own kind of personal um, you know, assessment or analysis of who is doing it right within this new space? I think anytime, anytime the entire media horde shows up, I always look for the people who try to tell the story a little differently. It's hard, like, we get into this rat race where it's like everyone has to confirm every little detail of everything, and can we, and it's kind of this very old school model. 
And the reporters I enjoy reading, especially from Ferguson, are reporters who, while everyone else was chasing some nonsensical news of the day thing, hunkered down somewhere and just wrote a really interesting story about something. And that was, and I, and I kind of exist in a space where I had to do a little bit of both because that was the demands of the place, place I worked. But I also look at my portfolio of the things I did while I was in Ferguson. I have a lot of stories that I feel like fell into that. This idea of like, this had nothing to do with the news of the day. This was like, I went and hung out with some high schoolers in Ferguson and talked about how this affected them. Um, I look at Reporters who I think do that well, um, Matt Pierce, the LA Times, is a good friend of mine. All these people are good friends of mine at this point. Um, Michelle Cinder at USA Today, I think is remarkable. Um, John Swain at The Guardian. And, that, and they, The Guardian's really interesting on these issues because they, Europeans are very, especially like people from England, love to like, love to bring up this like legacy of slavery thing. They're like, what is wrong with you Americans? Like, why, why do you do these overtly racist things all the time? What is wrong with you? <laughs> like, we got rid of slavery a long time ago. Why, why? And so, but The Guardian, to this day, does they, John is being one of them, this really, really good coverage on these things because they kind of have this kind of indig like indignation. Like, what is, what is this? Like, what are you doing? What is wrong with you Americans in this place with this thing? This is outrageous. And so, and so I thought that was really interesting. Like I said, in total, and I, I just think that, like I said, we get so much caught into the daily stuff, into the, to the little minute details, and what I think is so much more important is taking a step back and telling the story more broadly. Um, another person I mentioned, and I was thinking about him too with this whole, like, are you the story thing, is I'm a big fan of this guy, Charlie LaDuff, who's also a friend of mine, who's a reporter, a uh, broadcast reporter in Detroit, he used to be a, a writer for the New York Times and the Detroit News, and now he does video. Um, and he tries to tell stories in ways that are just, like, you should, I'll go, like YouTube him, because a lot of his videos are really well done. This idea of how do you provide spatial context, how do you provide, how do you tell a story? How do you do well-written video and well-written broadcast? Um, and then how do you tell the story no one else is telling? If, and on some days in Ferguson, the story was how ridiculous all this media was. And so on that day, that's the story he told. And I think that that is a more honest and more transparent way to do the coverage. Final question, Nick. Yeah, uh, thank you for coming, this was, this was fantastic. Uh, there was a gentleman, I don't know if he was uh, in the state police, uh, African-American guy. Uh, Ron Johnson, yeah, the uh, was, Just from the TV news, uh, he was portrayed as kind of like the savior. And I just there was really interesting uh, narrative built up, built up around him. And the, the reason that uh, one of my colleagues, Michelle Norris, uh, she's one of the things she's studying this semester or doing a study group around is this idea of post-racial and where Obama mm -hmm. helped bring this word into you, know, you didn't really hear it until uh, the Obama presidency, or or in mass media anyway. And so I'm just I'm just curious about this particular individual and what your perspective on him and how what the media coverage of this particular individual was. The we wanted the media wanted a savior. Things were chaotic. Things were terrible. People were getting tear gassed. It was these kind of thug white cops doing this crazy stuff to this black community. What's going to happen? Can't they just put a big black guy in charge? And can't he just solve all the problems? And and everyone wanted that. And in some ways, Ron Johnson did some of that, if only because many of the things that the police were doing prior to Ron Johnson were so absurd that they were very easy fixes. Um, that if people are marching down the street, rather than like running up on them with a tank, you could be like, Hey, which way are you guys marching? You want to go over there? Okay, cool. And so Ron Johnson did things like that, asked the march where they were going, and said, okay, yeah, that's fine, you can march over there, versus meeting them with force. And I think that that, and so what we saw was, after a week of these clashes and this intense stuff, Johnson came in and he was, and he was a soothing factor for a day and a half. The problem was, uh, you, you can't, there's no silver, when, when a community is actually really upset, 
that this wasn't just about provoking the police to do heavy-handed things. The community was actually really upset. And so they weren't, they weren't going to be appeased by like the black state trooper all of a sudden being in charge, and so it's going to solve all the problems. Because it wasn't about... It wasn't about that. In fact, most of them were like, this guy, is, this is a setup. Like, they're just hanging this guy out to dry. He's not, these problems are bigger than Ron Johnson. They weren't about Ron Johnson. Um, he was, and the other thing is, and this goes back to, and this is, you look at issues of race and law enforcement in the United States, and people said, talk to black officers who say this, I'll talk to white officers who say this, talk to a lot of community members who say this, that there's, there's an argument to be made that, when someone become when someone joins a police force, they become blue. That it, that the race doesn't matter in the same way. That some of the things Ron Johnson says and continues to say are deeply offensive to some of the protesters and residents as any other police officer. Um, and the fact that he's a black man doesn't change that to them. That it's about much more than the symbolic. Well, the police chief's black, so all the problems are solved. It's much more about is there are the relationships between these communities irreconcilably broken or systemically broken. And if they are, it has nothing to do with who is who has the badge on them. It has much more to do with the system itself. And I think that that's one of the things that Ron Johnson shows. I'm sorry to say we're out of time. This has been fascinating. Wesley, thank you very much. Of course, thank you so much for having me.